You're listening to Abroad, where we celebrate the diversity and humility of immigration through storytelling. I'm your host, Michelle. Hello and welcome to Abroad. And today I have my beautiful guest, Kiri, joining us. Hi, Kiri. How are you? Hi, good, Michelle. How are you? Doing well, thanks. I'm just in Michigan at the moment with my family, so I have a bit of a different setup here. It's quite nice, though. It's nice to be with family during these times. Yeah, absolutely, especially after (laughs) not being able to move around for so long and just, you know, reconnecting. So that's really good. All right. So um, tell us about your home country. Where did your journey begin? Well, uh, I'm, I don't think my name gave it away, Kiri. <laughs> it's actually a phonetically spelled out Korean name. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from South Korea. And um, I was born there. And I came here when I was around 18 months. Mm. And um, do you know what your name means? In Ooh, Korea? I, you know, so it's really funny. In Japanese, it means cucumber. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's always an ongoing joke with me and my friends. Um, but in Korean, if you break them apart, the two syllables, um, since all Asian languages come from or like kind of rooted in the Chinese language, um, the two syllables mean um, like together, it just means a prosperous life. Uh, it might mean, not be like the direct translation, but that's what my mom um, based the name off of and got the two syllables to create that meaning. That's beautiful. So you were quite young when you moved from Korea. And where did you move to? I moved to Los Angeles. Well, just in the suburbs, the outskirts. Um, But I'm 30 30 miles away from downtown Los Angeles. And I've been here for most of my life. Okay. And did you move with family? I did. I immigrated with my mother. Um, My father actually immigrated first uh, in order to set up some sort of a situation for me and my mom to come to. Um, because if, if initially, my mom was pregnant with me when my father left. So mm. he wasn't there for, I think, the majority of the pregnancy as well as me being born. And I mm. didn't meet him until I immigrated to the US. So I think there was a bit of an adjustment. I don't remember much of it, but I do remember, I have a lot of previous memories um, before my immigration actually which is interesting <laughs> at such a young age. Yes, you actually remember some things. Yeah, I had a very deep connection with my grandfather on my mother's side. And uh, he, when he was young, he tied a string on a dragonfly's tail and had me, you know, fly it around the room. It was my first pet. And it's like a very endearing and sweet memory that I have that I, I will never forget. And I made sure that it was real and I wasn't making it up because I related when I was in high school to my grandmother to see if it was true. And she started crying because she remembers that day too. And um, I think it was a bit of a shock when he passed away because he, he passed away and then I moved. Um, so there was a little bit of a block of memory there, I think, because of that. I think it was a lot of um, shifting that I wasn't ready for maybe at that age. Mm, that's so sweet. So the dragonfly means a lot to you. Mm-hmm, it does. Yeah, it represents, um, you know, like my connection to my grandfather, like the joy that I felt, you know, even at that age and 
how important it seemed like it was because it, it embedded itself into my memory. Um, mm. We actually have that in common. Uh, my grandmother and I, we had this dragonfly thing. Every time we would see a dragonfly, she would tell me that it's like an angel watching over me. And so now every time I see a dragonfly, it represents her. It's so sweet. I love that. Yeah. Well, it's really incredible that you, you remember that. Long-term memory is great. I can tell you my short-term memory is not. So there's a balance there. <laughs> I can relate to that too. I'm a bit of a goldfish at times. So, but I can remember so many details from the past. Exactly. Yeah. Really vividly too. Yes. So um, do you know like the primary reason why your parents chose to move? Like aside from a new opportunity or a new place to raise kids that's safer? Yeah, I only know bits and pieces, but from what I know, my grandfather and my dad were in business together and they chose to move to the States. And my aunt, so my dad's sister, was already here and um, they were making the move. And my dad was actually dating my mom at the time. So my grandfather said, hey, you know, we're going to try to move our business to the U.S. That means you have to find a wife and marry her because you might not find somebody when you get to the U.S. So you should just lock down whoever you want. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it seemed very contractual. Um, but, I, of course, all of this information came out much, much later once I was an adult. So it um, kind of gave me a broader understanding of what my parents' relationship was and why it ended up turning out the way that it did. Mm. Um, so it seemed like they had to make a lot of their own sacrifices in order and choices um, that were rushed in order to, you know, out of fear because they're jumping into the unknown and doing it with somebody, I think, is a lot less challenging or fearful than doing it alone. So, um, you know, they made the leap of faith and um, he initially succeeded and made a home for us. And then me and my mom joined him a year and a half later and um, my sister was born. Uh, just a little bit after that mm. so it was like a very sweet interesting disconnected at first but like a sweet beginning yes mm. yeah and what was life like um in LA you were in the suburbs right yeah uh ooh. when I think back that early on uh, when I think about just being an immigrant at that age was that I don't remember seeing images or people that look like me on television mm -hmm. and you know back then tv was and commercials on tv were everything mm -hmm. and there, there was no skipping <laughs> so yes. you know i always had a little bit of confusion as to why i didn't look like my peers and even though i was very much immersed in a very uh asian dominant community uh i didn't at my first school it was a little bit more like a blend of cultures um so I didn't stand out I don't feel like I stand, stood out as much but I do realize I did realize that I didn't look like everybody else mm. and that for some reason made me feel like I didn't look like the way that I felt like I was supposed to look mm -hmm. um so like fitting in felt very odd um because I didn't know who would want to be friends with me because I was different than a typical you know white person or Latinx person or, you know, um, one that looks more traditional American. So um, it was, you know, I can't say, I, the initial, initial memories were very fond 
Um, I didn't have a lot of big clashes, nothing like that. I think most of the bullying and things like that, hardships came around high school. So in the beginning, it was very sweet, but I had a hard time navigating where I kind of fit in in my community. Mm. Yeah, I can see definitely, especially as being a teenager, uh, where do I belong? Which group do I belong in? I'm different to other people. You know, those kind of questions that are coming up as you kind of grow into who you are. Um, I think it's it's funny, high school is often a place where you, you want to fit in. And then I feel like once you get out of high school, you just, you want to be you want yourself, to fit out. you know, <laughs> you want to stand out. It's just such That's a silly paradox. Thing. It really is. It really is. So how was it after after leaving high school for you? Uh, after high school, I can say it's it sounds if I when I put it into words, it sounds much worse than it actually was. But I think the first, you know, between the ages of seven and 16 to 17, I had a really hard time. Um, there was turbulence in my parents' relationship and things like that. So I think once I wanted just out of this broken family situation, I ran. I ran really hard and I got married at the age of 20. Oh, wow. <laughs> I like, jumped okay, in. Here we go. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you have these ideas when you're that young, when you're running from something that was so hard, you hold on really tightly to whatever you can at the time that feels like love that feels like forever. And uh, I wholeheartedly, you know, jumped into that concept without and really knowing or anticipating what sharing a life with somebody really meant. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I there's no concept of it at that age, um, even though it's something that I wanted truly. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't last very long. It lasted about three years total. Um, and by that time I was out, but I didn't really truly find my footing and my calling and my self-worth until I was around 26. Mm -hmm. So lots of um, turbulent, turbulent times, um, turbulent times. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but I came out of it okay. And I have a lot of great people to, like, thank for that because I didn't do it alone. Mm -hmm. And transformational times as well. Yes, very much. Because mm -hmm. kind of, you know, finding yourself, finding a place where you belong, um, rediscovering I think after relationships rediscovering who you truly are and um, your worth and your value in the world without a partner and safety all these different things yeah wow um so did you get a chance to visit Korea um yeah so in the beginning because my I am from a very big family I have 16 aunts and uncles and 16 cousins. Wow. <laughs> I have four on each side um, and they all got married and we all had two kids each. Very even Stephen here. <laughs> um, so I'm from a really big family and because of that, my family traveled back to Korea every summer um, between elementary and middle school. I actually, though, haven't been back since my senior year, which was my senior trip, and I spent about six weeks in Korea, which I absolutely loved. But I don't know what Korea is like now because I haven't been there since 2005. Mm -hmm. um, and it's such a stark contrast from what my adolescence was. I was so connected to them, to my family. I used to mm -hmm. speak to them every year and mm -hmm. celebrate my birthdays with them. And, you know, once that traveling stopped, 
um, you know, it's been almost 15 years. I, it just, yeah, it just caused a lot of disconnection. So in some ways I'm really grateful for social media because that mm. actually brought us back together to some degree. So I know what actually they look like as an adult. Full-blown adults with careers and, you know, going to college. And I'm like, oh my gosh, because I'm actually one of the oldest. I'm uh, the fourth oldest of all the cousins. So okay. watching, seeing them grow up from afar was um, fascinating and terrifying at the same time. It makes time really, go by quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, time goes by so fast. I remember I have a, a baby cousin that I always called him baby Jason because I had um, like an older Jason cousin and a younger cousin that's Jason. And then, um, oh my goodness, you know, he's so grown up and went to college and he's he's working and he's got a partner and he's got this grown-up face and I'm just like oh my god this is it's kind of you know it's a bit of a strange experience because um I mean you transform but you kind of stay the same and then you see them changing and all of a sudden they're an adult and they really grow so quickly and and there yes there can be a disconnect there and um yeah, I, I myself, like I haven't been back to South Africa for six years now. And I, I know that when I go back, I anticipate like things are not the same. Things change. People change. My family is changing. Everyone's changing. So I have to go in without any expectation. I can't help but have a little bit of an expectation. But um, it's, it's interesting because you do feel um, a little removed from it, right? Because everything is evolving and so are you and and where you're living is changing as well so it's yeah it's quite a <laughs> quite an interesting experience to go back after all of that shift yeah it is and I think we forget that we have changed so much in that time but because we were in the experience we don't realize how drastic the change but once you see it happen somewhere else you see that timeline, the 10 years from where they were to where they are now, and it seems drastic to you. You've kind of gone through the same drastic change. It's just not the same kind of change depending on where you live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that there's also something when it comes to family, and you don't have to be an immigrant to experience this, but family has a certain expectation of who you are. And sometimes they hold on to that expectation and you can transform and then you kind of you know, reappear as someone who's really changed and you feel like a different person. And sometimes they can have expectations on their end. I've experienced that before um, with family who hadn't seen me for a while. And then you have to, kind of, you know, it's a whole thing. It's a yeah. whole thing. It's a struggle between wanting to be yourself and wanting to still fit in with their own cultures and mm -hmm. things like that things that they don't understand about you anymore mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. so I, I like to approach it with a sense of curiosity and wonder and just patience because i know that they have ingrained in their mind <laughs> some expectation of who i am or what my culture should be or, or whatever it is um so I'm really curious about your mom and I'm uh, wondering, does she have any traditions that she does or any cooking that you love that's, that's very Korean that connects you to that culture? 
It, there's an ongoing joke that I used to tell my friends is that the only thing about me culturally is the food. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I think outside of, you know, the way that I look, if you speak to me and you hear my voice and you see my work or whatever it is, I, I think feel very American. Um, but it's my exterior that kind of, <laughs> you know, changes that for a little bit. Um, but yeah, my mom is a, oh man, I, I look up to her so much. She immigrated here at 26, 27, um, to a brand new country, not speaking a lick of the language with a new kid. And then eventually like not that much longer later, another kid on the way, you know, and, and homemaking was her dream because, you know, Korea wasn't as it was still they were a dictatorship at one point as well. So women just didn't have a place in the workplace. Um, I still think in their generation. So my mom, you know, I think she aspired at one point, she said she wanted to be GI Jane. Um, I think she was very <laughs> active and went camping and things like that. So she has that, um, that strong personality and it really started to show when um, things started going downhill. My, um, when she was a homemaker, she would make tons of food. Um, she was, I told myself I wouldn't get married until I learned how to cook everything that she knew how to. <laughs> Which means I'll never get married. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's so many things today. So <laughs> and there's something about her cooking. It's so simple. It could be literally four ingredients. And I know what those ingredients are. And I whip them together. And it just doesn't taste <laughs> the same. And I still have moments where I'm in my kitchen and I have the ingredients in front of me and I don't know the rations and I have to call my mom, ask her, Hey, how do I do this again? <laughs> you know, and I'm, you know, kind of dreading the day that I won't have her to call back to, to be able to like, you know, reach into these pockets of knowledge and culture to be able to like pull from, because I'm still learning so much about her um, and about who she is and the things that she knows and as she gets older, she's still, you know, she's still a fighter. She works, she works so hard. Mm. Um, work ethic is so strong because she had to save me and my sister from like, you know, ending up in a halfway house, you know, during the divorce. Mm-hmm. And she just literally pulled herself up from the bootstraps, like to wow. put in the work, you know, so she is the most dedicated mother and human being that I've ever known. And I pull so much strength mm-hmm. from her always. I can't imagine at that age doing something like that. I mean, no. my, my travels taught me so much about my mom's sacrifices. Mm. When I went to those Latin American countries, mm. and I had no way to communicate with them before I learned Spanish, very little Spanish. It, it was so challenging. I couldn't imagine even just living there and doing the mundane things. So as an immigrant, there's always going to be a little bit of us having to pick up a little bit of the slack if our parents didn't learn fully, you know, I still have to call the DMV or like call the banks and like, you know, do those phone calls and the internet things for her because she just doesn't understand. And at first it used to frustrate me, but I'm understanding how hard it would be if she didn't have our support in that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine doing that kind of thing alone. So she sounds like support. such a fighter. Yes. And Ah, uh, just so strong. Like, I can't imagine that either. Moving to a country where I didn't speak the language and having having a child and just making sacrifices to um, create a new life and create a life of opportunity for your children. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, when we outgrew her, her knowledge, 
when she felt like she couldn't help us in her schoolwork and like she didn't understand the curriculums and she couldn't help us apply for college, you know, all of those things that we could have been so angry about. When as an adult, I look back and I'm like, wow, that must have been so hard. It must have been so hard for their own self-esteem, you know, mm-hmm. like going through that, like the empathy that I have now as an adult for parents. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. And mm-hmm. and I think there's also a generational difference. I mean, Definitely. I think about if it's not language, if it's different education, then there's this generational difference where um, as a parent, you know, I'm sure you want to connect to every everything that's going on. But, but the truth is, I, I really think that our parents teach us, they'll always teach us, but there's a, a little turning point when we go into adulthood where we teach our parents to you know so oh wow and you know i really look up to you for your work ethic like when i think i think like badass work ethic and like creative (laughs) and like connector and it sounds like your mom has those qualities too so you know, I, I know that you, you learned that um, yourself, but your mom has it too. <laughs> yeah, she does. And I, and I remind myself of, you know, when I've ever, whenever I feel like I'm too tired or I can't do it or I want to give up, I think back on the things that she went through and how she just swallowed it and just did it mm-hmm. and ended up where she is at now, where she's, you know, so happy on her own. She wants to date. She can. She doesn't have to rely on anybody. Like even during COVID, she had us and we really rallied together as a family. And I never expected that. Mm, and so sweet. Yeah, it was a real, it was a real, it was a real gift, a real mm. silver lining through mm. this last year. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just coming back together relying mm-hmm. on each other and then coming back together it was like an opportunity for connection yes mm-hmm. as much disconnection as we all felt in isolation there was also connection and i hope that for everyone if they didn't find it during that time to now um, find that connection you know definitely it's mm-hmm. what makes life rich mm-hmm. truly truly um so tell me if you could choose something uh, for your mom to make you tonight what would you choose oh my gosh (laughs) anything (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well i've actually been mostly vegetarian in my diet um since i was 26 uh, and unfortunately korean cooking is very very meat heavy and only within the last a uh, few years or so, my mom has taken my diet seriously and has started shifting some of the cooking to not include meat. So um, she's anytime she does like a really good broth or like really good soup. So traditionally in Korean, during your birthday, you'll get seaweed soup. Um, during the New Year's, you'll get rice cake. Um, so like the r- rich stews that we have in our culture, um, like the soybean sprout soup, the kimchi stews and things like that, those are all of my favorites just because i think i like the warm they, they serve them in stone pots so that the soup itself stays warmer and i think the the sharing aspect of the food culture is something that it's like a warmth in the food culture as well as like the warmth in the food and mm-hmm. it's always very um it always feels like home so i can't really pick one particular dish um but anything that is like a soup base 
from Korea, I am hands down for. (laughs) I love that so much. I love that. Um, So uh, the most incredible thing happened. You went on this adventure with your partner from Alaska down to Patagonia a few years ago. Yeah, I did. And it's not something that was ever on my radar. Um, I think once I grounded myself here in America, I didn't know that I could leave, really. I mean, and I just never traveled. I thought coming to America meant I had to work, 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 work in order to succeed here. So I never really took a break. And um, so like long term vacations, road trips, you know, that's not what was nothing that was, was something that I practiced at all. It wasn't in my life. Um, and then this person came into my life and was like, Hey, I want to do this thing on a bicycle. And I told him no, <laughs> <laughs> because I have no cardio. There's no, oh man. Like, I'm not riding a bicycle across the continent. No, no, you can, I'll, I'll be in the buggy that you'll be tr- like, like, <laughs> towing, you, know? <laughs> um, you know, so there was a little bit of compromising and. Yeah, we um, bought a van and put it to, um, built a home out of it and uh, drove down from Alaska to Patagonia. And it really did change my life and my perspective on not only the immigration issues that are happening in the U.S., but just more on the human level on what it really means to come to America and why people still do it, even though there's been like mixed reputations, you know, nowadays with all the polarity and things like that. But to some people and just from some places, it's still the the place of opportunity. And it really broadened my horizons on the fact that, you know, when you see somebody that's Latin in the U.S., they're not just Mexican, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're Guatemalan, Honduran, you know, from El Salvador or Colombian, you know, they can be from anywhere, you know, that is down, you know, south of our border. And the differences in their culture, their languages, the food and Mm. the warmth that they shared, um, you know, across all of those countries' lines. It it was so incredible. It made, I'm I'm not going to lie, it made Americans kind of look like assholes. (laughs) That happens to me every time I leave this country. I'm like, what? (laughs) People are so nice. They're so kind. They want to cook for you. Like, come into my home. This is... You know, and it's just a part of the culture. It doesn't feel like it's an expense or like it's something that um, I think, um, in my opinion, what I've experienced is America's very hustle minded. Yes. And it's go, go, go. But at what point do we slow down and take care of each other? Or how do we make space for that, even if we're in the hustle mode? Um, It really is a cultural thing. You have to have this value or... um, really put a lot of intention into creating that yes the thing that i really appreciated about their culture is their siesta mm-hmm. their nap time oh day yeah. between one and three when all the businesses are closed the families are with their kids the that break in the middle of the day was unfounded anywhere in the u.s <laughs> other than lunch you know like a real like three four hour break in the middle where you can kind of like take a pause from work reconnect with your kids and have dinner and then you know go back to work for a few hours and then be done with the day you know it makes the day a little bit longer but it does create this sense of you know a pause like a real pause in the day not just to eat because you have to but because 
you have other things that you can start to take time to do in your life, not just at the end of the day when you're exhausted. Mm -hmm. It's really ideal. I've always said (laughs) um, every business should have a nap room and a meditation room and there should be dedicated time to rest because yeah um breaks yeah it's like oh i have 15 minutes like quickly slope down whatever i have and then back to work but um having a pause to reconnect i think actually creates more creativity and yeah but yeah it's like how many hours can you fit in your day of work and productivity needs to be um you know to the max that's the culture here whereas there it just sounds like it's just embedded how lovely Mm -hmm. i love naps yes yeah covid was able to show a little bit that you know being really efficient and effective for four or five hours and not having that crazy commute and taking a pause it doesn't have to be a whole year of a pause but taking a pause i think i think that covid has taught us a little bit of that and being in la it's hard to pause because I feel like we're right back to where we were pre-pandemic. But um, yeah, I think that that's, uh, there's a little bit of a silver lining there as well that we can take away from this experience. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And speaking of pauses, um, you are a yoga teacher, a therapeutic yoga teacher, and you do one-on-ones. And I would love to hear about how you discovered your passion for yoga and uh, maybe just sharing what you love to do. Yeah, uh, I was 26 when I first found yoga. So um, a little bit like the game, depending on, you know, that's always relative. But I, it was really healing for me. At first, it started off as a fitness class that I wanted to try. But something that the teacher said that day really resonated something deep inside. And it felt like the same feeling when you go to church or you have like an emotional release or like um, I'm just trying to think of it, like points in time in my life where it like invoked a really strong emotion in me and it ha- had nothing to do with me. It was something else. And yoga had the same kind of pull. And at f- first it was just me practicing for about two years. And I realized after that time that I wanted to start teaching and I had no idea how, um, but I found a school, uh, that was yoga Alliance certified. Um, and then, you know, got my first certification and, you know, living in LA, trying to be a yoga teacher full-time is an a near impossible thing, especially considering the rent cost. And so I had to, you know, find odd jobs here and there and do other things on the side. And, you know, I came right back to being at that unhappy, you know, side hustle position that I was kind of in. And uh, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm so unhappy. This is not why I did my teacher training. I'm not doing this. And I just kind of dropped everything without a backup plan, which is very unlike me. And, you know, with like barely any money in the bank account to pay rent, I um, just cried for a couple of hours after I told my boss that I quit. (laughs) And I went to the park to practice and some guy approached me on that park that day and he became my first client. And then I picked up another after that and it just snowballed as if the universe told me this is exactly what I was supposed to do. And I just never looked back. And then my, so my fitness training, my first training was in Ashtanga yoga, um, which is a very fitness oriented, very strong practice. Um, But when I realized how much of the healing aspect that it was kind of missing, I wanted to study a little bit deeper. And during this trip, 
um, when I, when my partner and I drove down to Alaska, um, he actually encouraged me to reach out and find some of the schools while we were on the road trips. He was like, since we're traveling, let's go check some places and see if you want to really pursue this. So he was very, um, man, I love him. He, <laughs> he really did kind of light the fire under my bum and motivated me to, you know, pursue something that I didn't know it was something that I really wanted. But, you know, I finished my 1000 hour yoga therapy training and, um, I had the opportunity to go to and study in India with the master teachers. Um, and it was a life-changing experience. And now I work almost exclusively a one-on-one. I only teach three group classes a week. Um, and all of my other clients are private and I work one-on-one with them because they either have chronic pain, acute pain, musculoskeletal issues, um, movement disabilities, um, anxiety, depression, things like that, because there's a lot of somatic therapies that are involved um, when we practice yoga in this way. Um, and it's been seeing, uh, they've been seeing real results. And it's been so humbling and gratifying to me that something that has only, you know, it's not scientific-based evidence yet. It's still very much practice-based evidence of 4,000 years, but it's still practice-based evidence when you look at it um, on paper. But seeing the changes that is able to give these people um, to my clients, you know, that show up and dedicate themselves to this practice has been incredible and mind blowing. And I so I hope that the healing aspects of yoga can, you know, start to really surface here in the West, because there's so much more to it than a pretty asana. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is so special. That's so special. I think that um you know, me, when I found yoga, I found a community where I felt like I belonged and I felt supported and I felt like I could show up whatever was going on, however I felt, I could just show up and be with my community and be in my body. And to me, that was a sense of belonging. I think yoga was a sense of coming home for me. 100%. It felt like coming home. You were shedding the layers of you that were not you that were, you know, put there by your parents and your, um, your social circles and your, um, people that you are employed with and, you know, the societal norms that are, you know, pressed down onto us. It's you, when you start to find your true self and start acting in ways that are in alignment with that, you know, Mm -hmm. you can really find internal peace. That means nothing outside can really falter you Mm -hmm. uh, and how you feel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to talk um, a bit about Asian hate in this country. And my question for you is, how um, can others be supportive? How can we and what is what comes up for you around that? And how can others be supportive? Oh, this one's such a hard one. Um... No, <laughs> it's quite a hard one. I think the one thing that I want to bring to light first and foremost to people that don't understand what it feels like to be an immigrant is that it's odd to feel like you don't have a place to fit in. In America, I will never look white enough to fit in. And I will, there will will always be some underlying assumption that I don't speak English or that, you know, something or another. And when I go home to Korea, I also don't fit in because my style is American. I have tattoos, I have piercings. I, you know, and I just don't fit that 
social norm in Korea. So I also don't fit in. I stand out. People stare. And when you feel like you have no home, life feels very unstable. No matter how stable you feel in your relationships or, you know, your home life or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm, and I'm very full and I'm very grateful. But I've always had this underlying feeling of not fitting in. And I don't know why. That's why I gravitated towards choosing a partner that was a different race from me. Um, if I wanted to embed myself in communities and surround myself with people that were more, you know, fitting of a certain norm so that I felt like I fit in and I didn't stand out. You know, there's always a little bit of a, a fear. And for the fact that we live that life constantly, when the hate started happening, it was like, Ooh, now this, okay, well, <laughs> now I was just figuratively scared because of my previous experiences and traumas. But now I'm like literally scared because I might be strong and I'm not a tiny person. I'm, you know, five, seven, I'm pretty tall, but mm -hmm. I'm still a woman, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm still an Asian woman and I'm not like a big person. I'm, I can't, I can't overthrow that, you know, six feet tall, somebody, you know, that's stronger mm -hmm. than me. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people realize that the reason why we all come here, the white reason why all the things happened with the genocide and the whole colonialism and everything, all the dark history of the U.S., the reason we all call this and choose this place to be home is because we were running from a, another oppressive or you know a difficult situation somewhere else. We didn't come here just because we wanted to visit Hollywood and go on vacation. We needed to come here because we felt like we had no other choice. And I think when people realize that, that their ancestors 10, 15, 20 generations ago did the same thing. We're, in this, we're on the same boat, even though, and they didn't look like the people that were here. They didn't fit. It was the same situation, just very, very different times. But it was the same scenario for them as well. But I hope that people can understand that, you know, as long as you're not Native American, you're an immigrant. You're not an indigenous person here on this continent. You're an immigrant. Mm -hmm. Nice people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that if we can really rally together between, you know, all of like the hardships that we've all endured, you know, even for white people, the reverse racism, there's all this stuff, right? There's always something to argue about. Mm -hmm. But if we can like, instead of polarizing and not understanding and not hearing each other whatsoever because we feel like they are on the other side, if we can try to understand what their life experiences were so that we can understand why they feel this way and that we can't judge that just because we don't agree, that can really radically change the conversation. Mm -hmm. It can be coming from a place of honesty about compassion and then they feel safe so they feel like they can say what they really feel and what they really mean and what their true experiences were to not feel like they have to hide. Mm -hmm. And what kind of peace does that create? Not only for the people communicating, but also for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think compassion is is the real keyword here. Compassion, and you know, I think that immigrants um, really add so much color and diversity, and and I think that just. Being curious and compassionate and having empathy and just accepting people and we're all just, you know, human beings, um, but, but really seeing how you can 
would be asking, you know, how can I be more compassionate? How can I be have more empathy? How can I create safe spaces? Those are things that I ask myself. And I think as humans, we can all do a little bit of that, you know, for our communities and for our loved ones. Mm-hmm. How much more we would open up if we had a space like that to be able to express ourselves in that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this is so powerful. And, <laughs> Ooh, and, and, Ooh. and, and but it's a lot. <laughs> I know. It's, it's big and um and i i just wanted to say that i i really um feel into your feeling of like where is home what is home because i've felt that so many times too like what is home really because i'm from somewhere different and so when i'm here i'm south african but when i'm in south africa i'm american (laughs) and it's i'm just like i don't know so now people ask me where i'm from and i tell them the world or i tell them the milky way because that's that's, that's like the best way for me to think like wherever I am I can find it but it really is um you really are different you know and sometimes you just want people to treat you normally and not like something different the curiosity can be fun but um but I I really I feel that mm. yeah thank definitely. you for sharing that with me and thank you for sharing so um vulnerably and I think that this a lot of people will listen to this and really like, yes, me too, or be open. I hope that there is some opening of compassion or maybe just thinking, um, seeing through slightly different eyes, new perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, well, so in person, I have actually moved myself away from the city. I live now in Idlewild, California, uh, which means I'm just a hop down the hill, uh, hop up the hill from Palm <laughs> Springs. Um, so if anyone wants to, you know, the Airbnb, it's like a nice little getaway vacation spot. You can always book me as a private for your vacation. Uh, I also teach in Los Angeles. So um, I have a website. My website is yogaidentity.com. And I teach, you know, my range is literally from Los Angeles to Palm Desert. <laughs> so Ooh, you want to, <laughs> yeah, my, my range is pretty broad at the moment because of my clients um, who I will show up for as long as they keep putting in the work. And I, you know, I love my life and my job. So the commute is something that I'm willing to do in order to, um, you know, bring this healing practice to the people that want it most. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can reach me there and on Instagram. My name is a pun. It's uh, curious. Anahata, <laughs> <laughs> which means heart in Sanskrit. Mm. Um, so that's where people can find me. Mm. Curious cucumber hearts. <laughs> oh, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> I love cucumbers. I love you. <laughs> so refreshing. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for joining us I feel like I could literally talk to you for hours and just there are all these uh, gold mines of knowledge and wisdom and and like you know just openings and um, thank you so much we'll have to do a part two and thank you for joining us in here and thank you to everyone for listening and please get in touch with Curie and you know if you're going to Joshua Tree or do you do Joshua Tree as well 
I do. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to Joshua Tree or Palm Springs or Idlewild, get in touch, book a one-on-one, book her for your retreat. Um, and, and yeah, thank you so much for sharing your heart and your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this. I think the more stories that people hear, the um, more we can start to really understand, you know, and celebrate each other's diversity and the differences and the things that we can learn from each other and not just share each other's cultural foods. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Beyond that. Um, I mean, which is the part that I love, but there's so much more to that. So thank you so much for doing your part in that. I appreciate you. Oh, my pleasure, of course. It's just a part of my, my purpose here. So thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Abroad the Podcast, where we are celebrating the diversity and humility of immigration through storytelling. Maybe you know someone who has a great story. Feel free to get in touch. My Instagram handle is African with a K underscore sunrise. Please subscribe and comment. Illustration is by Tanya Fedan and music for the intro and outro is by Talhu Music and you can find out more information about their work if you look below in the show notes. Thanks so much friends, take care and stay curious.